Kia ora, I'm Damien Venuto. It's February 3rd and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. New Prime Minister Chris Hipkins has had a chaotic start to his time in office, with the flooding in Auckland adding to the list of woes the government faces. However, two polls this week have given the beleaguered Labour government some good news, with Hipkins and the party narrowly ahead of Christopher Luxon and National. But with the numbers suggesting the country is on the verge of a hung parliament after October's election, it's going to be a tight race when the voting starts. Today, I'm joined by NZ Herald political editor Claire Trevette to discuss the new political landscape taking shape and what it means for both parties. Claire, two polls this week revealed the voting public's first impressions of Chris Hipkins. What did they say about Labour and Nationals' popularity and the personal popularity of the two Chrises? Yes, they were both interesting polls. There was the New South Wales researcher and the TV NZ1 News Cantar public poll. They both showed um, pretty much similar things, that Labour had an injection of support since Hipkins took over and the Cantar public one, they had gone up five points, I think, up to 38 very good start for Hipkins, to be honest. Um, in terms of the personal popularity of the Chris's, Hipkins kind of debuted. He hadn't really featured in the preferred PM before. He debuted at 23%. And again, just pipped Luxon, who was on 22%. So they'll be pretty happy with that on the Labour camp. The more worrying poll question, actually, for Luxon was in the News Hub poll, which was about trust, whether people trusted the two Chris's. And Hipkins came in with very high trust figures. I suspect a legacy from his COVID management, which was he came in at almost 53% people trusted him and 27% didn't trust him, whereas Luxon was quite a long way behind on 37%. The more concerning one is that 44% of people didn't trust him. So he's got a way to go to kind of try and boost those figures up. But all in all, I think Hipkins will be very delighted with the start he's had. There are moments where it sinks in uh, and then there are moments where it still doesn't quite feel real. Are you surprised at all by how close the margin is between them in that preferred Prime Minister ranking? No, I'm not really surprised. The the surprise is that not that Hipkins came in at that figure because leadership changes in the past, like when Key, when English took over from Key, English debuted at a similar level. I think it's the same for other leadership change takeovers. I mean, as soon as someone actually becomes Prime Minister, of course, they become the preferred Prime Minister for a lot. I was quite surprised to see, I wasn't sure how fast the support would fall off Jacinda Ardern. In the One News one, that fell off very quickly. She was right straight down to 5%, which also happened to Key, but I thought that the Labour supporters might kind of keep saying to Cinder for a while for that question, just because they were so devoted to her. And that fell off quite quickly. The, the News Hub poll, she was still above 10, but their poll was taken like a few days earlier. So basically from the day that Hipkins was made the leader, which was only a couple of days after, Jacinda Ardern said she was resigning. So that possibly explains why there's a bit of a less of a movement there. But I'm not surprised it's close. I mean, it was already going to be a relatively close election and now it's possibly going to be a lot closer. Polls, dead cat bounce, or is Hipkins the real deal? Oh, 
Oh, look, not unexpected at all. I mean, you'll know better than me, but you know, new leaders get a bump, and especially when you've got the office of the Prime Minister right behind you. I think if you go back and look at the last two scenarios that are closest to this, Jenny Shipley, Bill English, both of them got a 25 to 30 point bounce and bump as well. So, look, they're going to bounce around for a little bit, but fundamentally, nothing's changed. I mean, we've still got new leader, same team. Claire, Luxon has been on the attack over the past week using this line saying that Hipkins replacing Jacinda Ardern doesn't really change all that much. He says same party, same problems. But the polls this week did show that Luxon hasn't really resonated with the public and more people still distrust him than trust him. So less than a year out from the election is a time we saw more policy and fewer slogans from National. Well, it, yes, it is. And I'm, I mean, I'm sure we will see more from them pretty soon. And we kind of have to because Labor now has grabbed the agenda well and truly by the throat for this year. And it's going ahead. Luxon Hipkins is announcing things. He's about to announce a lot more things. And Luxon kind of hasn't really announced anything other than what they kind of announced last year, all of which is kind of now under review as they decide whether or not it'll stay around for the election. He keeps going out there saying things like, well, we're going to get things done. Well, the trouble is we don't know what things they're going to get done yet. And he can't leave it very long without explaining some of that because people are going to see that for what it is and it's going to get very grating. Chris Hipkins has also had a really busy week. He reshuffled his cabinet. What are some of the headline promotions and demotions you saw in the rejig? Yeah, that was quite an interesting reshuffle. It went a little bit further than I thought it would. He kept his top five pretty much intact, which was more or less the same as Jacinda Ardern's top five without Jacinda. And Carmel Cipollone has moved up, but she was already at six. So very little movement in the top five. But on the front bench of 10, there's now five new people who were ministers before, but they're now more senior ministers. So the big movements in terms of portfolios is, of course, health going to Aisha Verrill because that'll be a massive um, election year kind of thing that Labour needs to get the advantage on very early on. And Michael Wood, in particular, his promotion gives him a lot more influence. He's picked up the new portfolio of Auckland as well as holding on to his transport portfolio. And there's a lot of dovetailing there, of course. He's also been made an Associate Finance Minister, which is the Finance and Associate Finance Ministers have are all part of the kind of economic subgrouping. So he he has a lot more influence and clout than he used to have before. In terms of the other kind of headline items, I guess there's local government being taken from Nanaya Mahuta, who now holds on to foreign affairs only. We were expecting to see that one happen. So Kieran McAnulty now has local government. That's partly because they do want Nanaya Mahuta to focus more on foreign affairs rather than stuff that's happening at home, which is what local government requires, but also because Three Waters and some other local government reforms have been so controversial. They want to kind of put a new association in there and remove they're so closely associated with Mahuta that they're kind of trying to break that a bit. It's the same with health in a way. Andrew Little has done a pretty solid job, to be honest, of bringing in those health reforms, but they now want to put Aisha Verrill in as the kind of health face for the election year. As Minister of Transport, Michael Wood presided over the uh, cycle pedestrian path over the uh, bridge that ended up not happening in the end. It's a bit of a shambles. Is he really the guy to be Minister for? I absolutely have uh, huge confidence in Michael Wood, um, and I'm confident that we're going to make all of those decisions about the big issues that affect Auckland. We'll make them collectively. Michael's got a fantastic ability to bring people together, to get clarity around issues, and to get clarity around the direction that's required. 
Claire, what do we know about this Minister of Auckland role? What are the remits and responsibilities of the portfolio and why do you think Hipkins added it to the mix? We don't know much yet. So it is, Michael Wood has said it's kind of puts him in a coordinating role. So when something's happening in Auckland, he's the one who kind of deals with the coordination of the various ministers who have, you know, whose portfolio responsibilities cover Auckland, which is, to be honest, all of them. Auckland is a third of the country. So they all should be focused on Auckland to a certain extent. It's the kind of role where you make of it what you would, and it very much depends on how much influence you have, which is why the extra influence he's got could be critical here. So a lot of it will be crossover with his transport portfolio because of the massive transport projects that are proposed or underway in Auckland. There is a political reason I think he added it as well, which is that Hipkins himself is not from Auckland. And the last however many prime ministers back to Jenny Shipley was the last non-Auckland-based Prime Minister, really. Oh, there was Bill English, but he didn't go on to kind of win that next election, although he did come pretty close, to be honest. So he'll be trying to show that Labour is focusing on Auckland because it does need to win back a lot of support in Auckland. And appointing Michael Wood there, who's quite a high-profile minister, that it'll be partly to do that. So you'll note that Hitkins himself has paid a lot of attention to Auckland since he became Prime Minister. It was the first place he went to, met with businesses up there, he had to come back here to do his reshuffle and all his paperwork and all that kind of stuff. And now he's back up there again for two days because of the floods. So a little bit political and a little bit practical. Could the rest of the country be a little bit miffed, given that us Jaffers are getting our own minister? I don't think so. I think they've got more things to worry about. I mean, there have been ministers for Auckland before and no one's really noticed it. So it could be different this time round. But most people recognise that Auckland is an economic powerhouse and does require special attention. Did you need a minister for Auckland because of the failure of leadership from the year? Uh, Look, I'm not going to ever get into speculating on or providing a commentary on other elected representatives in Auckland. They have their own relationship with the voting public in Auckland. My job as the Prime Minister is to work with whomever Aucklanders elect to represent them. What about Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown? Do you think that there's a danger that this could step on his toes a little bit? Well, I think think the bigger risk to them is that Wayne Brown could step on their toes a bit. It's possibly also why they've made Michael Wood that position. I think Michael Wood and Wayne Brown, by the accounts of both Brown himself on Twitter and Michael Wood, have said that they do actually have quite a constructive relationship already. Brown is opposed to some of the things that Labour wants to do, so that is where he could step on their toes, for example, light rail. Then again, everyone thinks light rail is is in line for the scrap heap anyway under Labour's stock take, so... I think the bigger goal is that they're just trying to maintain a constructive relationship with Wayne Brown because the government and Auckland Council do need to have a constructive relationship. It's for the benefit of both Auckland and the country. Claire, while we're in Auckland, the city has been hit by devastating rainfall and flooding over the last week. Will the aftermath of this natural disaster have much of an impact on the fortunes of the political parties? Well, if the government bungles it, it will. A government that handles a crisis well gets the benefit of that, and we've seen that in the past in the Christchurch earthquakes for John Key and for Jacinda Ardern with uh, COVID, I guess, and the White Island and stuff like that. So the natural disasters can make or break a government. More often it makes them. So, yeah, that remains to be seen. I mean, they're working on flood packages and stuff like that as we speak and waiting to see the kind of how, how extensive the damage is. So it will mean a bit of a hit on the budget, I'd imagine, but... Yeah, we'll just have to see how that rolls out. How do you rate the performance of Luxon and Hipkins in response to this disaster so far? Well, it's a funny thing about 
natural disasters is that the politicians all go out there and help people and then make sure they're seen on social media or in the media helping people. So we've had Luxon running around rolling up wet carpets and packing food boxes and Hipkins as well as packed a food box or two for the sake of showing it. I think it's very hard for Luxon otherwise because leaders of the opposition are basically powerless other than in their capacity as kind of local MPs and being able to keep an eye on whether or not the government is doing enough but in general, in the immediate aftermath of a natural disaster, they're, they're more or less invisible. So it's a lot harder for him, whereas Hipkins and the government can do things like throwing money and deploying kind of casts of thousands to go and help with the support crew and do things with council and stuff like that. So it's a bit of an uneven battle on that ground. Given how much this flooding has overwhelmed Auckland's stormwater system, do you think this is going to help make Three Waters a more palatable idea for the public? Well, the supporters of Three Waters will be trying to push that and say it shows the need for Three Waters. I think it's difficult to draw conclusions on that yet, partly because Auckland Council already had very good water infrastructure. And that's kind of one of the reasons they don't really like Three Waters, because their assets are already very good. Chris Hipkins himself has said that he doesn't think that no matter how good the infrastructure was, really, that it would have been able to handle rain of that degree completely seamlessly. So I'm not an expert on water infrastructure or anything like that, but I I don't know if there's a strong case for it saying that Three Waters is now kind of much more palatable. The climate crisis was a big focus in the Australian federal election last year, with the independent Teals candidates helping to drive out Scott Morrison's coalition. Our climate has changed. The rise of the six Teal independents was one of the big stories of the May election. Their vanquished opponents in once-safe Liberal seats left stunned by the resources marshalled against them. Do you think we'll see climate change be more of a focus from Labor and National this year, or do you think their rural vote is going to dissuade them from pushing too hard on this issue? I'm not sure if it'll be the rural vote that does that. It might do that with national. There's a lot of degree of bipartisanship around climate change now, which is to the credit of Jacinda Ardern and James Shaw in particular. I don't think it will be as much of a focus as it might have been in the past. For example, with Jacinda Ardern campaigned quite strongly on it in 2017, Chris Hipkins has kind of said that he's now going back to bread and butter and the here and now issues facing New Zealanders. You saw that when they extended the fuel tax cut for another wee while. And in fact, indefinitely, they're going to review it again at the end of June. It's just that that's when the budget cycle kicks in. So I wouldn't, they're hardly going to remove it two months before an election, are they? And he was asked then about whether or not, you know, this subsidy for effectively fossil fuels showed that they weren't taking climate changes seriously. And he said, no, they are still focusing on emissions reduction, but they do have to concede that there are a lot of New Zealanders who do rely on fossil fuels to get about their daily lives and they just simply can't afford to. So I would say that the emphasis on it from Labour at least will be more subdued than in the past but not completely abandoned and that's because he wants to go back to those so-called bread and butter issues which is helping people afford to live which is the kind of big here and now issue. The cost of living crisis is clearly the big issue of 2023, but neither party has offered any clear long-term solutions. How likely is it that we'll see politicians offer help to lower socioeconomic groups this year rather than constructing social policies that seem to do little but appease those higher income earners? I think the target is more the middle than the higher or specifically the lower. The lower 
economic groups say super and benefits will go up quite significantly in April because they're pegged to inflation, basically. So they're due automatically for quite a large increase. I would think that Labor will be trying to come up with some tax, maybe a potentially a tax cut policy, but one that tutus around with the lower thresholds so that it impacts everyone equally rather than giving more of an impact, more of a benefit to those on higher incomes. It would give everyone pretty much the same kind of benefit level and that's kind of what they would be aiming to do. Their their opposition to tax cuts at the higher end has been that it gives a lot more to the higher earners who don't necessarily need it. National is already indicated it's dropping its plan to repeal the top tax bracket, but we're yet to see. So I think we're more likely to see help for the lower socioeconomic groups from Labour unless National decides to offer a surprise, but there's not many votes in them for it anyway. Yeah, so we'll see. But I think both parties have made it pretty clear that they're targeting the middle. Given how tight this election appears to be and how candidate popularity is unlikely to factor into things, how important will it be to see a big picture inspirational policy from the major parties this year? I'm not sure there'll be much demand for it. I mean, I think that the way Hipkins has pitched himself is, you know, the bread and butter and um, here and now is pretty much probably when most New Zealanders are, rather than um, vision and kind of long saluting reforms and stuff like that. I mean, you can go overboard with those kind of things, but there is a point where people just want to see the government delivering on the basics better. Is that a concern for the country, given that we've been in a period of crisis for several years now, it feels like we're responding to the immediate needs and not really thinking about those longer-term problems sufficiently. Is that something that's going to bite us in the future? I would say economically they might be thinking about the longer-term problems. The trouble is that a lot of the solutions for that are politically unpalatable, such as raising the super age or capital gains tax and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it is what it is. People vote based on how they're feeling on an election day, don't they? We ask you this question every time you're on, but now that we have a new Prime Minister who's been sworn in and we've had chaotic events over the last week, are there any predictions you'd like to make for the political year ahead? You know what, I've come a proper on this question before. Last year when I said that Jacinda Ardern would not resign before the election, so the only prediction I'm going to make for the political year ahead is that it's game on. (laughs) Fair enough, Claire. Thanks for joining us. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Sean D. Wilson with executive producer Ethan Sills. I'm Damien Venuto. You can follow The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in on Monday for another look behind the headlines.